I'm going to ask you to open up your Bible and go to the letter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. I took a break from our study in Hebrews just this past summer to look at how we ought to use God's wisdom to find our way in this world. And we ended last week by saying that Jesus Christ is actually God's greatest display of wisdom. Greatest display of the wisdom of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. And we've just now at the table here been thinking about how that's true as we've participated in the Lord's Supper. God's wisdom is displayed in Jesus through his death and resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that the word of the cross is foolishness. The opposite of wisdom is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then a little later he says, we preach Christ crucified which is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so the wisdom of God is displayed, namely, the, the cross of Jesus Christ is displayed, and, and, and that connects the Lord's Supper and, and the passage that we're in today. And so this message is really just an extension of the Lord's Supper, there in Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18. What we all really need is to have communion with God. And that can only happen through his gracious provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and the Lord's Supper helps us remember exactly what it is that God did. It helps us remember. And and it's a reminder of sorts and a remembrance of sorts. And I want you to listen for those two words, reminder and remember, as I read Hebrews 10, 1 to 18. Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, that is the law, can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers have once been cleansed, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Back in the spring, when we ended our journey through Hebrews in chapter 9, at that point, we kind of finished, almost finished, this whole section on the fact that Christ is the better high priest. And so we want to just sort of review and, and recalibrate a little bit this morning. And this is actually a good passage in which to do that. This, this is actually a summary of the letter of Hebrews up to this point. Right after this, starting in verse 19, it's going to get into what it means for us, the application of knowing those true facts. It will give us practical implications of these great truths about the sacrifice of Jesus, practical implications of that truth for the church and for you as part of the church. But before we go there, verses 1 to 18 will help us regain our bearings a little bit, and they'll help us to to set our gaze once again firmly on Jesus as we just finished uh, singing before the Lord's Supper there. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, on who he is, on, on what he did, on what he's doing. These people, remember, who originally had this letter read to them were tempted to move on from Jesus. Jesus wasn't working out for them too well. It wasn't worth it to follow him. They were, they were being persecuted. Some of them were suffering just because they, they claimed a connection to Jesus. And they were thinking to themselves, I'm not sure if I like this. And so some of them were about to reject Jesus outright, and, and others, maybe most of them, and remember here he's writing to uh, people from a Jewish background, most of them were about to go back to the old way, into the old system, into the old rituals that they had had. They figured that they could follow God better when it didn't include Jesus. They had the law of Moses, they had their priests, they had their sacrifices, they had God's uh, covenant promises that were given through Moses, and that was good enough. They didn't need Jesus. And all the suffering that was part and parcel of claiming to believe in him and follow him. And so this whole letter is being written to try and convince them that following Jesus is worth it. To those that are in danger of rejecting Jesus, he's saying, wait a minute, hold on. Number one, it's dangerous to even think like that. And so Hebrews is filled with warnings, and there's another one coming later in this chapter here in verse 26. But besides warning them, he also wants to make sure that they really understand and they really get it firm in their minds who Jesus is. We could really break down the theme of this whole letter as Jesus is better. Three words, very simple. Jesus is better. For these people who had been born and raised in the Jewish system, Jesus is better than all of that. He's better than Moses, he's better than angels, uh, he's better than Abraham, he's better than the high priest, he, he brings in a better covenant, and most of all, Jesus is a better sacrifice. All those things they held dear, Jesus fulfilled them and is now shown to supersede them. Jesus is better. And by putting this letter in the Bible, God is telling us here today that Jesus is better than everything that you might hold dear. He wants us to make sure that as Christians, we don't ever think we should move on from Jesus. If you're a new Christian and you're wondering if Jesus is really worth following, or if you're a longtime believer in Christ, but Jesus occupies only maybe a a peripheral part of your life now, this letter is asking you to consider again who Jesus is and what his sacrifice really means 
and the magnitude of what God has done in procuring and in securing an eternal salvation for you. So in this summary of the book so far here in Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 18, we'll see one more time the superiority of Jesus over everything. And specifically, we'll see that Jesus does what what nothing else could ever do. He only needed to do it once, and that one thing has eternal benefits for us who believe him and follow him. Our biggest issue as humans when it comes to being connected to God, when it comes to standing before God, our biggest obstacle when it comes to our eternal life is, of course, our sin. And we'll see here that Jesus deals decisively with that issue. And not only does he remove the obstacle, he actually obliterates it so that it can never again raise its ugly head, at least in a decisive, condemning sort of way. And so we want to figure out in this text how Jesus deals with our sin issue, this thing that separates us from himself. We didn't do it today, but often during communion we sing a song that that poses the question, what can wash away my sin? And we answer the question in the next line, right? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, this passage, especially the first four verses, um, they, they tackle not so much the blood part, that's... We've already seen that. If you want to read about that, go back to chapter 9. But they tackle the nothing but part. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can never take away our sins? That's the question there that's answered in verses 1 to 4. And here it talks first about the law. Verse 1, since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can, and there you see the word, it can never, by the same sacrifices, that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The sheer volume of those sacrifices over the years can never make perfect those who draw near, the worshipers of God. The laws and the sacrifices that were designed by God in the Old Testament, Jewish-Hebrew system, can't never, there's a double negative, they can't never make people perfect. You see the same thing in verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It could never happen. It was impossible. What can wash away my sin? Well, certainly not the blood of bulls and goats. Certainly not sacrifices in that old system. And so you might be asking, what was the problem with the sacrifices? Didn't God command that whole intricate and, and, and very complex System of sacrifices back in the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers? Well, yes, he did. And it did have a purpose for a time. It could provide a certain kind of forgiveness for sins. But God's purpose in having those and setting up that whole system was that they were always a shadow of the good things to come. They were never anything but that. It pointed forward. And you could see that in the fact that they were repeated every year. And they were the same sacrifices. You could see their futility in that. They never changed. They, they never got better. They were never improved upon. If you have to repeat the same instruction to your children and they don't change their behavior, you know that your instructions didn't take. 
And so you try to figure out a better way of explaining, a, a new way of instructing so that they might learn. Well, that's what this was like, except the sacrifices never changed. The priests just did the same thing every year on the Day of Atonement. Down in verse 11, it says the priest stands actually daily at his service. Same thing every day. Lather, rinse, repeat. Well, what was the problem with that? Verse 3 answers that with a rhetorical question. If it could make worshipers perfect, if those sacrifices could make worshipers perfect, wouldn't those sacrifices have ended? You know, what comes after perfect? You don't need them anymore. But they didn't. Why? Because the worshipers were still conscious of their sins. It didn't finally and ultimately deal with their conscience. It didn't bring any real transformation in their hearts. The sacrifices didn't do the job, so they were back again the next day or the next year because there was more sin to be forgiven. Sacrifices had no permanent effect. They were incapable of reconciling people to God. And that visual would have been very clear as the priest would take the sacrifices and he would disappear behind a curtain to deal with sin. The people didn't have any access to God. They couldn't get to God. And so every year, that was a picture of the fact that they were sinners. And so look at verse 3. In these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. It was just a reminder of their sins. What's, what's good about that? Being reminded of your sins every year. Can you imagine if all that the Lord's Supper did was to remind us of our sins? It needs to do that. It needs to remind us of our sins, but it's not just that, praise God. We don't just stay there. That would be depressing. But that's exactly what it was back in those days. There was nothing in the law that would finally deal with sin. It only gloriously pointed ahead to something that was to come. And so people could truly repent and be forgiven in those days, but only if they saw those sacrifices as looking ahead to something better to come, something more permanent, something more decisive. And so just think in terms of this letter. The author is saying, do you really want to go back to that? After the good things to come have now arrived, they're here in the person of Jesus. The new covenant is here. Saying, I would hope not. Maybe some of you have come to Jesus and you, you maybe wonder why things haven't gotten better for you as perhaps advertised. You have become a Christian under the assumption that your life would be better now and you wouldn't have any problems anymore. Maybe someone gave you that impression. You've tried to do all the right things and yet some of the same problems that you had before are coming up again. And you might be thinking, why is nothing changing? Why is life not great all the time? And in your conscience, you're thinking, maybe, why do I still feel guilty? Well, maybe you're trusting in the wrong thing. Maybe you're still depending on circumstances. Maybe you're trusting in your performance and in doing those right things. Maybe you're still asking, how can I ever please God? Well, don't give up yet. Hang in there because that's what we'll get to next. The, the question verses 5 to 10 will answer that exact thing for you. What pleases God? Look again at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he says, 
Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I well, then it goes on to the rest where he repeats itself. But just stop there. We, we see here what does not please God. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then again, he repeats that in verse 8. But look who's talking here. Who's the speaker? This quotes from David's words in Psalm 40. But it attributes those very same words to the greater son of David, Jesus himself. In a conversation that's pictured here with God. This imagines God the Son talking with God the Father. Consequently, when Jesus came into the world, that's talking about Christmas, right? The incarnation. He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body you, God, have prepared for me. Verse 7, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written. This is Jesus talking to God. What pleases God? Well, not anything that you can do, right? Your performance, you, you're doing the right things, cannot ultimately please God, at least in decisively reconciling you to God. What, what pleases God? Jesus pleases God. As he does God's will. As he willingly gives up his body for your sins. Jesus' sacrifice pleases God. And now you can only please God when you are united with Jesus by faith in his atoning sacrifice for your sins. God is not pleased with offerings and sacrifices that don't involve any heart change. He doesn't want us to go through the motions in our worship. What he does desire is heart change, a a truly repentant, a, a transformed heart. He wants our heartfelt and and wholehearted obedience. That's what pleases God. And that's what Jesus came, that's what he willed to do. He came to offer himself, and he actually did it for our benefit. Verse 10, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. Jesus went to the cross on his own volition, which is, of course, different than the animals. They don't have any volition, right? They're just taken there by someone else. But Jesus went on his own volition so that you might be sanctified, so that you might be set apart, so that you might be made holy through his suffering, through his being spat upon, through his crucified body, once and for all, right? That's, that's decisive. That's complete. It's done. That's the kind of sacrifice that pleases God. And that's the kind of thing he now wants from us as his worshipers, as we worship. He doesn't just want us to go through the motions when we honor him with what we do here on Sunday mornings. We call it our sacrifice of praise. Where is your heart when you worship God? Is your worship meaningful? Is it heartfelt? He wants repentant hearts. Changed hearts, sincere hearts. Think of Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is because of Christ has, done, has sacrificed his own body already. Now you present your bodies as living sacrifice. And by that, that's, what, that's pleasing to God. It's holy and acceptable to God. 
And this is your spiritual worship. What is one way to please God? What's the kind of worship that's acceptable to God? Well, look at the next verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, what is pleasing, what is perfect. And further, the kind of worship that honors God is expressed in the church, right, towards our brothers and sisters that have also been sanctified. You just need to look down further in that chapter in Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. It's others-oriented. That's the kind of thing that pleases God based on what Jesus has done for us. So what pleases God? Jesus does. And we do when we are in Christ. He, he offers Jesus the perfect sacrifice. He gives Jesus, or he, he gives God perfect obedience as he came to do his will. He, he models the kind of sacrifice that God wants for us. Wholehearted devotion. Not divided heart devotion. Wholehearted devotion. Willing obedience. Others-oriented service. Well, if the very first question answered here is what can never take away sins, and now that we know what pleases God, we can ask the related question, what has forever taken away sins? And the answer is, of course, the single sacrifice of Jesus. And you see that in verses 11 to 18. And what really comes out there is the contrast between what was before and what the situation is now with the coming of Christ. You can see here why it's so important that you are connected with Jesus and why you have to now stay connected to Jesus. In verses 11 and 12, it says that the Old Testament priests were standing. They were always standing. They were always at work. You know, the, the Bible goes to various lengths to describe all the furniture in the tabernacle, but one of the things that was never there was a chair. In contrast to that is verse 12. There was the, the mercy seat, but that wasn't a place to, to sit on for the priests. But of in contrast to, to what is in verse 12 there, look, look at, or look at the, the contrast to verse 11 in verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Every priest stands daily. Christ offered a single sacrifice and he sat down. You know, in our, our hallmark world, we make holidays out of all sorts of things. And sometimes in the church we feel pressured um, to have to follow the Hallmark calendars. And so we, we sometimes commemorate Mother's Day and Father's Day and Canada Day and Thanksgiving Day. But the one hol- holiday that we seldom commemorate in the church is Labor Day. And, and in my opinion, it has the clearest connections to Christianity, or, or at least one of them. Labor Day, even though that connection isn't the intended purpose of it, But just think of it. We take Labor Day to rest from our labors. Well, Christ labored for us by going to the cross. He did all the work. And then he sat down. He had his own Labor Day. He he rested. His work was done. And his work is still done. He's still sitting there. And he only had to do it once. He only had to do that work once, but its benefits are for all time. And now we can also rest not in our own accomplishments, but in Christ's accomplishments and his laboring for us. And so the Old Testament priest was standing daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You see the futility there, don't you? 
But Christ offered a single sacrifice, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. In the old system, there's futility. In Christ's work, there is finality. His work is completed. It is finished. It is done. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Through Christ, no more guilt in our conscience. Through Christ, our sins are decisively cleansed and removed. Oh yes, we still sin once in a while and we can come to God and confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and that needs to be our posture as believers. We need constantly to be repenting Christians, but not decisively. That work has already been done. Through Christ, we are purified and washed. Isn't that glorious? Isn't Jesus worthy of our reverence and of our awe and of our worship? And just to close, I just want you to see one more contrast that highlights the pure beauty of what God has done in Christ, starting in verse 15. The writer goes back to his Bible to point out what God promised in the new covenant. The covenant under which these people lived here in Hebrews. The covenant under which we live here today. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts, write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. See here that God does all these great things. He puts his laws in our hearts and he writes them on our minds. He, he renews our hearts. He transforms our minds. He cleanses us really from the inside out. We can't do that. God does that. This is his sovereign work. But I want you to notice, especially verse 17, then he, that is God, adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, to see the amazingness of that one sentence, look back at verse 3. Talking about the old system that these Hebrews were talking about going back to, he said, in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Now, every time these priests made an offering on behalf of the people, it, it just reminded them of their sins. He said, it's awful, it's, it's depressing. A reminder of sins? That's what we want? That was verse 3, but now ahead to verse 17. In the new system, inaugurated by Jesus and, and sealed by his self-sacrifice on the cross, God says, I will now remember their sins no more. Now, that's some kind of declaration. But he could say that because of what Jesus did for all those who re repent of their sins and trust in him. God would remember their sins no more. No longer just a reminder of sin. It's a reminder of what God won't remember. He could only remember the sacrifice of his son. A sacrifice that satisfied his justice. A sacrifice that pleased him. A sacrifice that grants forgiveness. A sacrifice that puts away sins. A sacrifice that unites us with Jesus. A sacrifice that adopts us into the family of God. A sacrifice that puts us into fellowship with other believers in a local church. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We celebrate that we can have communion with God through the sacrifice his son, of his Son. And we remember 
the one who dies, so that we could no longer just be reminded of our sins, but that we would remember the one who remembers our sins and lawless deeds no more. Our Father, how great is that? We are so, so thankful for your Son and our Lord and Savior. We thank you that in his and in your great and grand and glorious purposes, you sent him to this earth. And we thank you that he came to do your will, to offer himself for our sins. Lord, we admit that it's sometimes hard to to get our head around the depth and the magnitude of that one sacrifice. Our minds often drift to lesser things. But we thank you for planning it, and we thank you that your son obeyed your plan perfectly and carried it out to perfection. Thank you that you now remember our sins no more. Because Jesus paid for them all. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for the fact that we can draw near to you now in worship through the one sacrifice of our sinless Savior. And now as you walk out into the world, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.